Welcome to Man in the Making with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. Joining us today, we have Kashi Satyanada. Thank you for coming on here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Kashi. So let's just get rolling. <clears throat> Thanks, everyone, for listening to the podcast. We're having um, over 100 over a hundred downloads um, for each uh, day, and it's it's a growing and growing. And we're kind of in an, in in our infancy for this podcast. So to everyone listening, thank you so much. We appreciate every share, every like, any review you want to give, good or bad, whatever. And email Raj at rajanshankara.com to communicate with me and uh, bring up topics. And if you want to be on the show, we'll talk about it. Kashi, my brother. So I met yes. you in a monastery. Yes, we met in the monastery. I think that was 2006. I met you in a tropical jungle monastery in 2006, and you had a different name, and you looked different. And it's it's over a decade later. How do I know you are you you are who you say you are? <laughs> I think that's the, the continuity of our friendship ever since that, that time. As soon as I heard your laugh, I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> that was it. <laughs> you, you were, uh, so I came into the monastery, this <clears throat> young dummy, uh, know-it-all, and we were in different departments. I was in landscaping and construction. You were in media, web uh, management, uh, uh, video work, writing, editing, proofreading, publishing. You were that guy. And <laughs> so right off the bat, you were a mentor for me and still are. And for, uh, and still in my, uh, my words every day, when I talk about my list of mentors, you're at the top because you're still alive. Uh, Socrates is up there, but. <laughs> Yeah, he died a little while ago, I remember. <laughs> I can't I can't email Socrates. I can't call Socrates and, and say WTF, you know, this is going on. Good thing that he was such a proponent of understanding impermanence. Yes. Yeah. We all have to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was an interesting time. I I was um on the ver I had been in the monastery for about a decade at that point and I was on the verge of taking my lifetime vows and I remember the moment when I did that and you were called into the guru temple to take pictures yes <laughs> oh, I now remember I did not have that uh, stored in my uh, the front of my mind until now yeah yeah that was fun and you said, uh, this is a very auspicious moment uh, to be here and, and to see this. And one minute you were wearing robes that I aspired to wear, the yellow robes of the yogi. And then uh, the next next stage of the game, you had you had taken those vows and, and wore orange robes, could grow a beard, could uh, teach at a higher level, even though you were already a teacher as you traveled and everything within the monastery. Uh, I mean, everyone listening 
can go back and hear my story. Uh, our listeners also will have heard my story, for those who know it. Kashi, what is your story a little bit? And, and you know, how did you get in that position and, and to where we are today? Mm, yeah. Well, in I, I think around the age of 12 or so, I uh, I had pretty strong spiritual inclinations. And I started to go to church services and synagogue, temple services and mosque services with friends of mine that I was growing up with in my neighborhood who were members of various different faiths, uh, various Christian faiths and Jewish and Muslim, Hindu as well. Um, and I was just kind of searching for what resonated with me. Um, it took a while to figure out what that was. You know, after high school, I bounced around from job to job, still searching in a way, um, not knowing where to go. And growing up in Northern California, I had the opportunity to spend time with some of the Hindu teachers who would frequent here, like Amachi, uh, Mata Amritananda Maima, the, the hugging saint that I'm sure many people have heard and, of. And you've you've uh, you've had a hug or no? Many, many hugs. Many. Yeah. Um, so I, I would go with my friend Paul, who uh, lives here in San Francisco, um, to see her whenever she would come to her ashram in San Ramon. And I studied, um, kind of in my, in my late teens, I started to study Buddhism. And I found that there was something missing. It, 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 there was a lot about it that resonated with me philosophically, but there was something culturally and kind of theologically that didn't fully resonate with me. And so <clears throat> I kept my search going. And in, I would say around the summer of 1996, I was working at Apple in Cupertino and my job required me to, I, I was doing software testing for their internet access software. This was at the early days of the internet, the dial up days. I don't yeah. think I knew that. Yeah, and and we were uh, in the process of making the software to connect Mac computers to the internet more robust because the internet was starting to be more than just text pages with hyperlinks to other text pages. You had images and you had sound files and other things that took up more bandwidth, and so we had to completely restructure the network stack in. Uh, the Mac software, and I was involved in the testing side of it and working with the engineers. Um, I had to just surf the the web or what existed of the web at that time in its early form. And one day I did a search on Hinduism, and I found a website called Hinduism Today, which is the magazine that's produced at the monastery on Kauai. Uh, since 1979 and I read a whole bunch of issues of the magazine. I read um, several books that were in 
uh, text and image format on the website. Uh, I read the monastic vows that were posted there on the website. I read the Song of the Sannyasin, which is a poem by Swami Vivekananda. Yeah. That uh, was really, really inspiring. And those vows, those vows were written to kind of capture the the seeker, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I was captured. It it really rang true with me, and so um, I felt like I had found what I was looking for for years. And so I emailed the guru, Sivaya Subramunia Swami, who founded that monastery on Kauai, and told him that I wanted to become a monk. And he emailed me back about a half an hour later. <laughs> nice. Um, and I was, I was really impressed by that, by how accessible he was and how personable he was. And we started corresponding. He put me in touch with a couple of the other monks and I corresponded with them. Um, he emphasized not rushing into it. He put me in touch with some of his followers in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I attended a Ganesha Chaturthi celebration very shortly after that on the shores of uh, the San Francisco Bay at Baker Beach and connected with some of his followers there. And I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed connecting with them and reading his books. Um, and around the same time, my friend Paul, who uh, was bringing me to Amachi's darshan sessions at her ashram in San Ramon, where she would hug tens of thousands of people that would come from all over the Bay Area. Isn't that amazing? So, so just oh. for everyone listening, this woman is hugging people and sort of giving off uh, blessings and a darshan almost darshan is, is this uh, radiation this vibration that you give off from your uh, efforts so uh, for a spiritual person their darshan would be love and, and compassion and healing and things like that knowledge maybe and she's saying something to you right every time you hug her yeah yeah usually she's She's whispering in your ear in Malayalam, which is the language of the state of Kerala in Southern India, where she's from. Um, <clears throat> sometimes words in Sanskrit. Um, so I, I, I remember I asked you about Darshan. You're the first person who I talked about Darshan with. And you said, as I was a monk at this stage, and, and I think it was after a class or something, or a meeting of some sort, and you said, I, I said, to you, uh, you know, can I, can I have darshan? Can I give off darshan? Because that's what, that's what any 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 monk is, is is it's a benefit if you're doing if you're doing the work you want to produce something beneficial for people. And you said you gave me this reassurance that if you're doing the work, you're doing your meditation, your sadhana, your or your spiritual disciplines, you have darshan. You're going to give off darshan. And oh, I was. I was um, I was nervous because I was uh, going to India where people were going to touch my feet for the first time. Because when you're a monk in the Hindu faith, uh, followers of the faith uh, touch the feet of a, of a monk or a holy person. And in even more orthodox traditions, they touch the feet of their parents, right? Uh, a child, their parent, at, at, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it's very common. Yeah, darshan is an interesting concept. Darshan literally means sight. It's the it's a Sanskrit word, and it means sight. But like many words in many languages, there are many layers to its meaning, and it's much more than just physical sight. There's a there's a spiritual and emotional component to it. Um, when you when you see someone and and you you feel something from seeing them, that's darshan. It could just be the it could just be the the love and attachment of your mother and father. That's darshan. That's emotional darshan. Or it can be a great spiritual teacher, and you're feeling something on another level. Um, or it can be your best friend, and because of your connection with them, you're feeling that connection when you see them, and it excites you. you there's something that stirs on the inside of you. And so like that, with a spiritual leader, when you see them, there's something that stirs. It's the same as when you look at an image of someone, a picture, uh, and you and you feel something. Um, so like with starstruck, being starstruck almost. I've, have you ever seen a celebrity in real life, and you're for some reason they 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 have a different. They're like brighter. They have an aura, and you're like, whoa! Does everyone see that that actor right. actress? Right. And seeing and being seen is it, it, it can invoke that that uh, awe. Right. Yeah, and and so in the most poignant sense, it is a it is a two way street seeing and being seen. I'm glad you said that. Um, because when you have spiritual darshan, there's a connection that is based on the accomplishments of the person who's farther along the path and the desire for progress or the, the seeking, the striving of the person who may be a little less far along the path. But there's this recognition that we're on the same path we're all going in the same direction. And maybe the person that I'm looking at, the feeling that I'm getting is that the person is a little bit farther along and they have something to teach me. And even just seeing them and being around them can kind of that, that what they've accomplished can rub off on me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you are, you are, you're now exploring, you're creatively exploring the possibilities of, of Hindu, uh, the Hindu greats. And you're getting closer to that jungle layer that I met you in. <laughs> yeah. So I went to another jungle. I went to a jungle in Southern India, um, a few months later before I even went to Kauai and met Guru Deva in person. And I, uh, I met Amachi there. So I traveled all around India for about three months in late 1996 um, on a shoestring budget. And uh, I was staying in ashrams. I was sleeping on concrete floors with nothing but a straw mat between me and the floor um, and, you know, taking bucket baths and, you know, living the, the really austere 
Southern Indian style ashram life um, and enjoying it and getting a lot out of it. And one day while I was staying at Amachi's ashram in Amratapuri in Kerala, um, I was hugging her and as I, or I was in the, I was in line getting ready to hug her. And as I approached her, I looked into her face and I saw Guru Deva, who oh, is wow. the founder of the ashram in Kauai. Um, and it kind of took me aback. And um, as I was hugging her and she was whispering in my ear, I got this very, very powerful message that he indeed was my guru and that I should proceed with confidence and go and meet him. Because at the time I was wondering, you know, am I going to find my guru here in India somewhere? Is it her? Um, I had been in touch with him, but I, you know, and I felt a connection with him, but I didn't know. I still hadn't met him in person, um, so on and so forth. And so there was this kind of confirmation from her. Uh, and the two of them had met years prior. Well, maybe three years prior, the two of them had met at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago. Nineteen ninety-three, uh, which was the centennial revival of the Parliament of the World's Religions that had taken place in Chicago a hundred years prior, so um, they felt a very strong connection. Apparently, I later found out, <laughs> and um, and kept in touch. She doesn't speak any English, but they kept in touch via correspondence with some of her. Swamis who do speak English and uh, through their interactions that they had at conferences like the Parliament, Parliament of the World's Religions uh, and some other function that was connected with the UN, I believe. And just on the, you know, on the spiritual plane, Gurudeva later talked about being connected with her that way. So um, it was interesting to experience that and kind of see her confirm that he was going to be my teacher for a while. So that was the sense I got. And on the way back from India, I stopped on Kauai because I was traveling uh, back from India to San Francisco over the Pacific Ocean. It was easy to stop in Kauai and spend some time there. So I spent a week there. Uh, I met him in person. I met some of the other monks. I went on an outing with some of the monks. Um, at his invitation and felt a really strong connection with them and decided, yeah, this is what I want to do. I thought at the time it was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And uh, I went back there in the summer of 1997, thinking that, moved there, got rid of all of my belongings, divested myself of the little assets that I had left after spending all of my money going to India, <laughs> not knowing if I was ever going to come back. And, uh, and that was it. So that was 97. And then uh, about nine years later, I met you there on the verge of taking my lifetime vows once I had been there for almost a decade. So when I, when I went to the monastery, my, well, when I, when I left the mainland, uh, my dad basically thought I was going to be a beach bum. He said, 
said that to me. He said, okay, well, yeah. and what, what did your, what did mom and dad say? My parents were very supportive. They always wanted me to do what was of interest to me and what I thought was best for myself. Um, they lived for a time in a hippie commune in San Francisco in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, um, right around the corner from where I'm sitting right now, actually. <laughs> and so that because they grew up in, in the San Francisco area in that era, they had a sense of spiritual striving and personal work that um, I'm very fortunate to have been exposed to. And so I was, I was encouraged. Of course, my mom was sad that she wouldn't be able to see me as often as she could when I was living here, but um, she came and saw me on Kauai on a regular basis. She would come once a year, except when I was on retreat. So you used a couple terms here that we'll get into uh, that we that we know as common, but they're are they're foreign to anyone else. But before we do that, I want to just cover something real quick. I think that'll be beneficial for everyone listening and myself and Rokas. Uh, Buddhism versus Hinduism. I, I want to I want to kind of guess that you went to Hinduism for the same reason I did or similar reasons and that is uh, and tell me uh when i'm wrong that the so buddhism is 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 very common it's it's very accessible and it's simple but isn't that the reason that drew us to hinduism because it's too it's almost too simple without detail like we need a we needed a structure uh that was going into the metaphysics of other worlds and, and, and different ways to enhance our consciousness beyond the very basic void that Buddhism proclaims. Where are we there? Are we in agreement or? I think that there's a lot of simplicity accessible in Hinduism as well. Um, that's definitely one of the differences that some people experience between the two faiths. Um, I think philosophically, where I'm at now, philosophically, there's much more affinity between the two faiths than I thought before. Um, the reason that I count what you were talking about at all, but the reason that I connected more, that I felt I connected more with Hinduism than Buddha, Buddhism in the end was that there was this sense of God and who God is and that God is this, this being, this accessible, worshipable being. Um, my view on God and who God is has evolved tremendously throughout my life and and I'm in a different place now than I was when I felt a connection with Hinduism. So, you know, like you said, you used the word void. 
the void in Buddhism is a concept that describes the ultimate state. And the ultimate state in Shaivite Hinduism, which is the sect of Hinduism that we adhered to in the monastery and, and studied for all of those years, um, also, in a sense, describes the ultimate experience as a void. The realization of the self is the experience of nothingness. It's the experience of the potentiality. It's the experience of no difference between you as a soul and everything else. It's the source, the, the seed, the concept unexpressed. And so in that way, they're really the same. But Hinduism describes a different path toward that goal. And at the time, that was what I identified with and drew comfort from, was this idea that you could worship God. In, in Buddhism, there's, except Tibetan Buddhism, which is a little bit different and has much more Hindu concepts about God and worship, and inner world beings. Um, I, I felt like I, like I, I needed something to kind of draw me along. It was, it was less of a culturally austere path. Hinduism is less culturally austere than Buddhism, if that makes sense. It does. And, and something I thought about that when you were speaking was the, the, we know that Buddhism comes from Hinduism. Right. I guess. I mean, that, that's something that ever, that we can say. It's, it's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure that can be, I'm sure that can be debated a bit and, and refined. But in a sense, if, if I guess we're calling it, we're, we could say to be more accurate, uh, Buddhism's founder came from a Hindu family. Yes. Yeah, he was a Shaivite Hindu, like we were. And it was only after he died that his followers decided to put forward his teachings as something other than Hinduism. Um, what they thought was beyond Hinduism. It was kind of a distilled form. And I would say that my my own philosophical perspective has evolved in a similar way. Nowadays, I don't think I would call myself a Hindu or a Buddhist, um, but my philosophical perspective is significantly simpler than it was before. And it has a lot to do with what perspective I hold right now that works for me. And it's different from what, well, it's, it's an evolution of what I was taught in the monastery. It has much more to do with um, concepts like acceptance and love and uh, meaning and, and what I call the, the, the concept of inherent perfection. That so everything is perfect. Yeah. So what I say is, is an Eastern philosophical perspective. I mean, uh, I do regard myself as a Hindu, 
but I'm not, I don't, that doesn't mean I disagree with Buddhism either. I'm not sure there's much to disagree with. I, I think, I think when I say Eastern philosophical practitioner, I teach Eastern philosophical, uh, uh, uh things, uh, philosophy, theology. I, I think it, it sets me apart from Christianity, from Jesus, from Judaism. Sure. That's kind of, I think that's kind of where I'm at. And I, I, I don't know. It, it, I'm, I'm, that's a wonderful, uh, explanation though. And I guess part, partly for me, it's, it's, I was looking at the monastery as the source of, uh, self-realization, not, not the monastery, but Hinduism and Raja Yoga and Ashtanga Yoga. The fact that the monastery taught that in depth and lived it, I was like, okay, why don't I go to the source and see what, you know, instead of going to everyone who's outside of it, right. I'll go to the source of, of where Buddhist teachings come from, where self-realization comes from, and where Paramahansa Yogananda, my catalyst, you know, comes from, who, which he later changed to uh, original Christianity. Is that right? Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's what he, I think that's how he described it. Yeah, Hinduism um, is, in in some opinions, the the oldest faith. Um, it can be traced back a very very long time, um, approximately ten thousand years, and it's there are so many common threads between all of the Eastern religions and philosophies. And they all seem to lead back to Hinduism. Um, even the Native American and other Native faiths throughout the world have such strong similarities in their philosophies and their cosmologies with Hinduism and various aspects of Hinduism. Um, it's it's safe to say that there's a there's just a there's a strong connection and and I don't know what to call it you know maybe it's ancient spirituality versus modern religion that's based on specific people that did certain things and stories that were told and carried forward and scriptures that were written and all of that and I'm I'm talking about you know. Abraham and Judah and Jesus and so forth, Muhammad, um, you know, there are all these characters that came out of this hotbed of philosophy in the Middle East at a certain point uh, over a period of time between, you know, 5,000 and 800 years ago. And, uh, and it's much, much different from the spiritual philosophies that originated in various parts of the world between 10 and I don't know, 25,000 years ago, <laughs> uh, depending on, on how long you, you go back in the evolution of man, uh, humankind and, uh, and, and how we were thinking about what the stars meant and, and, you know, where our energy came from but it's really there, there's so many similarities it, it's it, it's impossible to discount them 
can I ask you, uh, I don't know, have you ever given any thought? And, and So you and I, I think we're kind of uh, similar in our thinking. We, we have the uh, mental capacity to fully digest something in our mind before ever speaking about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, I think some people would call it, you know, maybe mental OCD, but it's just a very, it's a, it's a clear way to uh, go about something before, uh, you know, before putting it into existence. And I think things come out clearer that way and they come out more, uh, more processed. And people will say like, oh, how do you say these things so clearly? And it's like, well, I spent a year just thinking about it. So have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about this thing that, that philosophers, modern day philosophers do where they praise the enlightenment as, as, as it was the only thing to produce um, certain philosophies and, and they kind of forget or they don't, they don't touch on the Eastern side of everything and they praise uh, this enlightenment thinking as the original, uh, the original godheads of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And what, I, I don't understand that. And, and especially with philosophers that I, I respect, they, they, they think of philosophy beginning in the West and, and being the mm -hmm. crux of modern society and the underlying kind of ideology, which I don't understand because before there was many many things in the east much before the west and before enlightenment that wasn't even that long ago yeah i think that's a really good point you know i i have to admit that my reading list nowadays is populated with the likes of uh, seneca and marcus aurelius and epictetus and others of uh, the stoic philosophy but Part of the reason I find them so interesting is that they encapsulate concepts that I learned in Hindu philosophy so succinctly, and I don't find any difference. So, you know, you could play the game of who said it first, but the dates speak for themselves, and who knows who traveled where and when. Um, who knows who some of these people's teachers were, you know, they, there, there was, if you look at the geography and the linguistic connections, um, especially in the Indo-European languages, uh, there was clearly a lot of philosophical trade, let's say, between India and the Indus Valley and the Middle East and the Caucasus that, um, that, that people just don't talk about and they don't recognize it and they don't, they don't, they don't assume that Aurelius and uh, Seneca and so forth learned possibly from Indian yogis or that there was trade of those ideas as much as I think there was. I think that it's a matter of who said it in a way that is more approachable to people right now. And, you know, 
from the Hindu perspective, you can always have people who learn from a teacher and then go on and speak forth from their own knowledge and experience and what they learned from their teacher in their new locality, in their different language, uh, and are free to call it their own. When Gurudeva taught certain of his students, uh, one of whom comes to mind in San Diego, he told them, learn from my teachings and teach your students, but don't mention my name. Don't mention where you got this from. Present it as if it's your own. And I think that that level of humility is something that has always been there, especially on the Eastern side of things, that you know, nobody is looking to be a big name or have a huge following. Um, they may, that might happen, but not because they're asking for it or telling people that they should do it. Um, or if they are, then maybe that's a perversion. But usually there's humility, especially if they're under vows, <laughs> like and we were vows. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the Seneca aspect where he, he's constantly saying, uh, this has been said before, I haven't created this, but I, I, I'm saying it now as my own because yeah. it's true. And I don't need to remember who said it and, and you don't need to remember me, but I'm saying it and it's true. Right, right. Like when I, when I talk about the core of my philosophy being acceptance and love, when I say it's all about acceptance and love, I think sometimes about the person that I heard say that who happened to be an Episcopal bishop in Texas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. I know that. I know who. Yeah. Um, but I don't always say that when I tell people about my core philosophy of acceptance and love and when I'm telling them what that means to me and how to practice that on a day to day, day to day and moment to moment basis. Um, when I tell people that, Another part of my core philosophy is the inherent perfection in everything, that everything is exactly as it should be, that, that nothing is happening that should not be happening. I don't necessarily quote the source, even though I know that the source is a particular yogi that didn't want anyone to have anything to do with him in Sri Lanka yeah. in the 20s and 30s and 40s and and that our guru learned from him and, and carried forward that philosophy. That, that's a really important one to me, the idea that everything is exactly as it should be. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that way, right? <laughs> it is of my belief as well. Rokas, do you believe that? Everything is as it should be. Um, to what extent? With everything. Yeah, yeah. Think about it like that. Everything. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah it's like it's like midnight where Rokas is. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, okay, Rokas. He's, like <laughs> he's falling asleep over no, here. No, I'm fine. So, um, it's very interesting. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Kashi, are, so are, are you saying that you're the uh, original proponent and creator of radical acceptance? <laughs> no, I'm certainly not the only one. <laughs> Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Of course, that that seems to be the, one of the newest kind of um, rages now. Radical acceptance, and, and uh, whereas I remember your email signature, you know, years and years ago, saying exactly what you're saying now. And uh, you know, I, I knew you before you were famous. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Kashi, uh, so you used two words that we're going to cover real quick in the monastery that no one knows about. Uh, we went as monks. We went on outings and we had uh, retreats uh, to to kind of level up our our, our ranks, as I always say. Uh, what did what did we do? Why did monks go on outings? What's what's an outing? And, and how, did you you know did you enjoy that part of your life? having such discipline all those years and just being under this uh, regime sort of in the monastery. I, I did enjoy it. Um, I was grateful for the opportunity. <clears throat> um, I mean, it, it certainly had its challenges, but I have always thrived on challenge and I don't think that there's any reason to live a life without challenge it, it would be awfully boring and we wouldn't make very much progress so there was definitely a lot of challenge in the monastery but that's also the point um but outings were a way to kind of take a break from that challenge for a moment so you know a group of monks would go out uh, I'm sure they still do. Well, actually, I'm not sure they still do. Maybe in the time of COVID-19, they don't. But um, when we were there, monks would go out for, um, you know, half a day to the beach or uh, for a long hike in the hills, in the jungles, <clears throat> uh, as, a, as a way to just kind of get out and take a break, you know, bring a, bring a lunch or a snack with them, have a picnic lay in the sun, which are not things that you would normally think monks doing, but Gurudeva valued the idea of what I call the in-breath and the out-breath. Um, you have to take breaks. You have to have some relaxation. Otherwise, the stress of the challenge, which is good for you, can accumulate too much and and put you into a mental and emotional state that's hard to get out of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's part of what he called the middle path or what his guru, Yoga Swami, called the middle path. Actually, I think it was Yoga Swami's guru, Chalapa Swami, who called it the middle path. <laughs> it, goes back, it goes back generations, you know, to the, like, well back into the 19th century. Um, and, and even further, of course, you know, Buddha talked about that. A, a lot of philosophers um, and, and the philosophers that we were talking about, the Stoic philosophers that we were talking about a few minutes ago talked about the middle path. It's this and idea. Japan, uh, in Japan, the, uh, Miyamoto Musashi in the 16th century uh, discovered that he needed to have a balance and, and had to take a few days off a week 
so that he could uh, rest, relax, recover, recalibrate, go back at it. And then and you're even better. At, it's like exercise science. You're even better. And, and, and your efficiency with uh, resistance training is better uh, when you uh, recover. So mm-hmm. it's, this, it's this microcosm and macrocosm truth that goes both ways. Absolutely. You know, we we observe it in our physical reality every day. If we don't sleep, if we don't take a break from the waking world and sleep, then we go all kinds of off kilter. So is the same way with our mental and emotional and spiritual disciplines. We have to be able to take breaks and relax uh, and then come back at it with full force. Otherwise, you know, we just get tired, we get discouraged, uh, we run out of gas. One of my favorite uh, outings that you and I uh, would do together was the uh, once a year, the camping. Yeah. Uh, having the fire, cooking food, and being on the beach, uh, enjoying the sunset. That was a real, uh, real pleasure to enjoy the island that way. Yeah, it was like a big reset. Yeah. Yeah, I looked forward to that every year. That was really nice. And then spending another night up in the mountains at that at that YWCA lodge that we would rent out for another mm-hmm. night uh, or sometimes a couple of nights and just be amongst the the jungle, the, the high-altitude jungle of Kauai, even the redwood trees. There are redwood trees on Kauai. Uh, most people don't know that. It's It's strange, but but true they i think they were planted in the 1930s kashi what is a um what's the small retreat that that among the monks did in their schedule every week and what's the big retreat for an individual monk kind of updating their uh, status yeah so the the small retreat was the weekly break <clears throat> the time to go on outings the time to sleep in uh the time to cook a meal from a different part of the world. Um, time to just go on a walk, maybe swim in the pond and watch a long movie. Um, and, and that would happen on a weekly basis, but on a lunar calendar versus the solar calendar, the Monday through Sunday that we operate on uh, in most of the world. Um, <clears throat> And the longer retreats uh, were of a completely different nature when someone was getting ready to uh, take another step in their monastic career. um, They would go on a retreat of either six months or two years. And that period, especially the two year retreat um, as a yogi wearing yellow robes, is a time where you completely disconnect from all external influences. Um, you're, you're disconnected from any duties that require you to interact with people outside the monastery, especially family. Um, you receive no visitors. You focus on your studies. You don't go upstairs at night and watch TV. You don't read the news. Um, you you spend at least three hours in the temple by yourself every day, 365 days a year for a couple of years, sometimes longer. 
in order to fortify your spiritual efforts and, and really focus your spiritual efforts um, in a way that creates a level of intensity that you don't normally have when you're taking that weekly break and when you're exposed to the news of the world and when you might have the occasional visiting family member um, and so forth. <clears throat> and it's such a strong focus. It creates such an intensity that there is the possibility to make major strides in your spiritual work that you're doing within yourself um, that are greater than you're making on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not like there's this relaxation all the time. There's constant progress being made, of course, as we live our lives. But um, the intensity created by a long-term retreat um, is an opportunity. And of course, it's up to the individual to use that opportunity and actually do that work and get the most out of it. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> you know, you can have a two-year retreat and fritter it away um, and, and not take advantage of the opportunity. And then you come out the other end thinking that it was a waste of time. Or you can do the work, um, really focus yourself, really apply yourself, try your best, uh, and come out the other end having made some major strides. And it's interesting because I know you and I uh, come from the same place of, uh, you know, it is an unfortunate thing when someone comes out of the experience, uh, maybe they spent five years, eight years, or, or 10 years in the monastery, and they come out worse. And we've seen that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, one of our dear, dearest brothers and, and friends, uh, you know, they haven't, they've left the monastery and they haven't quite, uh, they haven't made, quite made anything of themselves and they're in a worse, worse off position than they were when they went in. Uh, and it, it's always it's always difficult to see that. And you yourself are quite the uh, quite the brother's keeper, I would say. When I got out, you 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 got a hold of me very quickly, and uh, even came out to see me in Colorado as soon as possible. Uh, gave me gave me money to help me out, you know. And uh, that's that's uh, unusual and. You know, what do you think that is, that, that ability to not use the, the training and, and not even have it adhere? It's a good question. Um, I think we all have different mental and emotional makeup and background. And I think we enter the monastery for different reasons. And we also get different things out of it. Um, you know, if you go into the monastery because you want to advance yourself spiritually, you want to realize the self, you want to, um, you know, really do some deep spiritual work and um, apply the philosophy. That's one thing. And you come out with a result versus if you're going into the monastery purely because of an, an affinity to the cultural phenomenon that is 
Tamil Shaivism, the, the temple worship and the festivals and the, the, the colors and the dress and the language and the food and all of those things, the music, um, you, you get something else out of it. And one result is lasting and something that you can carry into a life outside the monastery and move forward with. Whether or not you continue to follow the religion versus applying the philosophy or the spirituality. And the other result is not necessarily something um, that you can continue to hang on to and, and make progress with unless you're part of that community. So, um, you know, it, are you, are you being, are, are you going to the monastery to do work on yourself? Like if you look at the root of that word, monastic monastery, it's, it's monos, which means one by yourself doing work by yourself inside yourself. That's really the point of being there. That's why it's called that. Um, or are you going there to be part of a group of people <laughs> yeah. that, that is expressing a certain culture and making food and singing songs and all of that? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's how I would answer that question. I, I personally find it unfortunate that the monastery would accept a candidate who is going only for the latter reason and none of the former. It's not sustainable, in my opinion. Agreed, agreed, yeah, and that's a beautiful response. Uh, I've never quite heard it like that, nor have I been able to uh, say and express it, the answer like that. that that's fascinating. And I'll, I'll definitely never forget that. So, Kashi, obviously you're an amazing person and uh, on many levels, and you affect people every day in your work. You're you're a successful uh, you're a successful professional in this world. What what are you what are you doing now? Um, right now, I am the IT director at San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Um, when I left the monastery, I <clears throat> got back into IT work because I had done it before, and I continued to do it when I was in the monastery, and I had some connections that I made while I was in the monastery, uh, especially through a consultant here in San Francisco that I hired back in 2008 to help with some of the IT work at the monastery remotely. Um, and, and so it ended up being facile to get back into that industry here. And I had a lot of support and connections. Um, and it led me through a number of different jobs, including some consulting, uh, running a consulting firm downtown, working at a, an AI robotics startup uh, before I realized that I really needed to be in the nonprofit world again, doing work that was uh, supporting meaningful work, some kind of a meaningful mission. And so I thought that 
um, this role at San Francisco AIDS Foundation was ideal for me when I saw the opening because the work that we do um, is in support of members of my own community here in the city, um, you know, and the gay community uh, who are unfortunately inequitably exposed and affected by a particular virus. Um, and not just that virus, but also hepatitis, hepatitis C, um, which is contracted frequently by people who inject drugs. And so, you know, it's really a form of community service and, um, you know, health service that I support emotionally and mentally and philosophically and culturally that um, having the opportunity to do IT strategy work and leadership work in such an organization really inspired me. And I've been with the organization now for almost a year. Um, and it's going really well. Wow, it's been that long. I remember when we were talking about your uh, interviewing process. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a year ago. I I, I I think I was offered the job in the middle of May, um, wow. or early yeah early mid May of of last year, and, and started at the beginning of June. Could you go more in depth on what you mean by meaningful work? Meaningful work is, <clears throat> to me, work that takes care of people. So, you know, it, it, it meets people where they are and offers them a way to either get out of an unfortunate situation that they're in, um, to maintain their health, to learn how to maintain their own health, um, to gain access to the, the services, the medications, um, you know, whatever it is that we can provide that allows them to have a more whole life that is not going to lead them down a path of degradation and death, um, which is otherwise what's at the end of the path for um, for people who are exposed to HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases um, or diseases that are transmitted via injection drug use. Um, so it's really just for me about taking care of people. And, you know, in the monastery, I was doing work that supported taking care of people spiritually. And here in San Francisco, I'm doing work that's helping take care of people um, physically, emotionally, uh, even financially in some cases. Uh, and, and that, that means a lot to me. It makes my heart beat. So fulfilling. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you, do you miss, uh, do you miss anything about the monastery? I miss going to the beach. I miss the warm ocean. Um, of course, that's outside the monastery, isn't it? The monastery is up in the hills. 
I, I think sometimes I miss the consistency, the routine. It's much more challenging to maintain consistency out in the world, as we say. Um, in the monastery, it's just kind of handed to you. It, there, there's this regimented schedule every day, and there's food three times a day. You know, you don't have to think about any of it. You just kind of follow along, and it allows it allows that part of your mind to quiet down, um, so that you can pursue other things. And that's great, and that's what it's there for. Um, but out here in the world, you kind of have to do it all yourself. You know, I have to remember to cook and eat three times a day, sometimes more than three times a day. Um, sometimes I forget and it's lunchtime and there's no lunch made and I have to do something about it really quick because I've got another meeting in 20 minutes, <laughs> um, you know, and I have to be conscious. <laughs> um, because I'll, I'll fall over and pass out if I don't eat three times a day, you know? <laughs> uh, I'm one of those. So. Hey, rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really not fortunate. I, I would not consider that fortunate. No, uh, it's not. I, I, I know exactly what you mean, too. You know, I, I have to exert my own effort, um, which I do, to, you know, do the things that I do, to do all the things that I do to support every aspect of my life. Um, and so I suppose I miss having some of it just handed to me sometimes, or, or at least every day, like the, just the, the basic daily schedule and the food, um, you know, always there, always at the right time. Yeah. So the consistency and the, and the routine and the structure, absolutely. I feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, but, but when I say I might miss that to a certain degree, <clears throat> I really don't, you know, I, I'm happy where I am and with what I'm doing and how I'm living my life now. I'm happy with the opportunities that I have. I'm happy with the different kind of spiritual progress and emotional progress and mental progress that I'm able to make and the different ways that I'm able to contribute and continue uh, contributing on various levels nowadays because you know the work that I do is not just IT strategy and leadership <laughs> I, I sit in meetings with people and I influence thinking and I listen and I provide solutions and I have relationships in ways that I wasn't able to in the monastery and I value it tremendously and it's a whole other level of opportunity to make progress myself and to contribute to people's lives that I didn't have in the monastery. So I'm really grateful for where I am despite the challenges and even despite our current circumstances. And uh, I'm really loving life. Yeah, that, that's, it, it's nice to be free, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you, uh, well, it's obvious, right? You're, you're, uh, you're happy. You're happy you did, you were a monk for so long. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. I'm very happy that I did that. I, I feel like it made me who I am. Um, it, it set me up in a really nice way to live a very fulfilling life. Um, and I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for that. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot. I, can, I had the opportunity to contribute a lot. Um, and I'm also glad that I left when I did. It was time. Time to move on. And to anyone who would say, who any young young uh, gal or guy would say, would ask that if they wanted to go and, and they're 18, 19, 20, they're kind of fed up with the world, should they should they join a monastery and become a monk, or uh, what would you advise them that their next step might be? I would not advise joining a monastery because you're feeling fed up with the world. I don't think that that's the right reason. <clears throat> um, if you're feeling fed up with the world, I would really encourage someone to look within yourself and find the answers to the problems that you think are problems in, inside and to examine whether your outlook is one that's working for you. Uh, and if it's not, and it's probably not if you're fed up with the world. <laughs> um, look at what the opportunities are to make progress given whatever your circumstances are. You have the power to control your life and it starts with controlling your mind. And everything that comes at you in life is a result of your own past actions. And so you have to take responsibility uh, if you find yourself in circumstances that you're not enjoying or that you find objectionable, it's your fault. And it's also, as much as it's your fault, your responsibility to get yourself out of it. You have that power. It's your choice. You can change your circumstances. I've changed my circumstances numerous times since I left the monastery whenever I found that there was an important part of my life that wasn't working for me. I identify it and I look at why is this not working for me and what would work better. And I identify what I need to do to change it. And I proceed with confidence. Whether it's applying for a new job, whether it's getting out of one relationship and into another, whether it's moving out of one apartment and into a house, um, you know, whatever it is that's, that's not working, I, I just take responsibility for it and charge ahead with making, making a change so that that part of my life is working. Um, it's, it's an intuitive process. You have to know how to, listen to your intuition and trust it. And those kinds of answers can come through learning how to control your awareness and how to control your mind through learning how to meditate. Um, so, you know, for example, the, the kind of lessons that Raj gives in learning how to control the mind and learning how to meditate are lessons in learning how to control your life and make your life what you want it to be 
because your life is no different than your mind. There's no difference between inner life and outer life. There's no difference between what you experience when your eyes are closed and your mind is quiet and what you experience when your eyes are open and there's chaos all around you. You are still the same and you have the power to make your circumstances whatever you want them to be. So if you're fed up with the world, look at your life and look at what it is. Look at each piece. Focus on what you can change. Focus on what you can do something about in your own life. Don't think about what the president is doing. Don't think about, you know, what is going on half a world away. Um, worrying about things that other people are thinking and doing and saying isn't going to help you. That's just the mind out of control. So look at what it is that's going on in your own life and make yourself happy by changing your own circumstances using the power of your will. That's what I would say to someone who's fed up with the world and thinking that they might want to join a monastery. Well, thank you. And, and that, that a lot of that hit home for me because I'm in the, I'm in a transition from uh, apartment to house. It's like, well, should we make the move? And it's like, you know, we were approved and, uh, you know, that's exactly it. Like, we're just not happy with what, where we are now in the apartment. And, and it's, a, it's the part of our life that is least enjoyable and, and, and working for us. And it's affecting, it's affecting our work. It's affecting our, our happiness. There's not enough sunlight. And it's, it's, it's one of the pieces that we need to change. And, uh, I think making that change is, is going to then kind of radiate out to everything else we do. And, uh, I, that's the, that's what I needed to hear today. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah. Take that step forward. Keep moving forward. I'm, I'm glad that that was helpful. Real gospel before we sign off, should I? I'll ask you. Do you have anything for Kashi? Any, any, any um, questions or? I was going to ask something along the lines of um, what the most significant things you learned that maybe you'd remember had the most impact on you that you could share with others. I think a lot of them have come out in what we've been talking about over the last hour and a half. It's really um, the perfection in all things, that everything that's happening is meant to be, otherwise it wouldn't be what's happening, that acceptance and love are a path that's very helpful, a perspective that's very helpful and that we are responsible for our own thoughts and our circumstances and our minds and that we have the power to change anything that's happening around us or inside of us. I think those are the most important things that I learned along with discipline, um, the importance of routine, yeah, I think that's I think that's what I can 
say in response to that right now. Okay. And, uh, nice if there's anything, uh, any way for people to contact you, if you'd like to add that. Yeah, maybe I'll make my Instagram public. It's been private for a long time, but uh, I think that would be a way to contact me. Um, you can contact me on Instagram at kashi.se, K-A-S-H-I dot S-E. Wonderful. So thank you, Kashi. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, the next time we talk and, and I can learn more from you and your experience. And this podcast has been a, about a year in the making. I was always wondering when, when we'd have the time to sit down and, and I guess uh, today was the day. So but I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, um, it was a good introduction. You know, um, as much as you've been a student of me over the years, I've also been a student of you. And I've really uh, admired what you've done since you've left the monastery. And I've been grateful to be connected. And I'm grateful that we had this opportunity for an introduction in the podcast and would love to talk again. Thank you, Kashi. Thanks, Rakas. Thanks, Rajan. Thank you, guys.